In episode 132, that was part one of this two-part podcast, we discussed an approach to the patient who presents to the ED with a presumed resolved seizure. We talked about how to differentiate seizure from syncope, from psychogenic seizures, from TIA and migraine, some of the issues around drug levels and loading, workup, and disposition. Now, in this part two, we're going to dedicate the next hour to status epilepticus. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, much of part two won't really make so much sense. So please go back and listen to part one first. All right, let's do this. Here we go with episode 133, Status Epilepticus, with Paul Koblick and Eileen Reed. A 22-year-old, otherwise healthy female university student presents to your ED after a witnessed tonic-clonic seizure that started 15 minutes prior to arrival and is ongoing as she's wheeled into your resuscitation room by paramedics. EMS reports that she was studying in the library with her boyfriend when she suddenly fell off the chair and immediately started seizing. EMS gave two doses of 5 milligrams of midazolam IM and were unable to establish an IV. On exam, she's unresponsive and posturing. Initial vitals show a temp of 37.9, heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 165 on 110, and an oxygen saturation of 92% on room air. There is no obvious signs of trauma or gravid abdomen. The ED nurse is busy establishing an IV, and the patient is hooked up to your recess monitor. So, Dr. Koblick, what's your general approach to this patient who is now, by definition, a status epilepticus patient? Um, And just to remind our listeners that the old 30 minutes of seizing is old news, and the new definition is either more than five minutes of continuous seizure activity or two or more seizures within a five-minute period without a return to baseline in between. So, Dr. Koblick, this patient has had 10 milligrams of IM midaz. Let's assume you've established an IV, oxygen slapped on, monitor is on. What's your approach going to be now? All right, so... Time is of the essence, and you don't even have time to change your underwear. Like, you've really got to get in on this quickly. There's a number of things that are going to happen in parallel here. And to be honest, you're going to need more help. So we can talk even briefly about crisis resource management. Cases like this, I need more doctors. I need more nurses. I need RT. And I may even be making an early call to the ICU for help. So many things that are going to happen at the same time, and we need lots of hands to get them done. Right off the bat, starting my sort of parallel workup here, I'm probably going to have another nurse working on a second IV. I'm going to have a nurse getting a cap glucose right off the bat. Even if EMS is really great at getting uh, cap glucoses in patients like this, but she's been seizing for 15 minutes now, there's a definite possibility that she's developed hypoglycemia even if she was normal glycemic in the first place. So it's definitely something I would get in my emergency department right off the bat. With that second IV, again, in parallel, we're getting a full panel of blood work. You know, in the heat of the moment, I'm probably going to say draw everything, but it's going to be fairly broad and it's going to help with us finding specific antidotes to stop her seizing. In my hospital, the quickest way to get routine electrolytes would be with a stat VBG. Somebody will run it up to the ICU. I'll hopefully have lights and the VBG in a couple of minutes. Um, So that's one of the first things I'm going to make sure gets done right away. With those two IVs, before I've ordered anything else, we're going to have fluid running wide open because let's face it, some of the things that I'm going to do to this woman in the next couple of minutes are going to make her hypotensive. So that's something I'm going to get started right off the bat. Airway. Let's start our ABCDs. Uh, Airway and breathing are really important in this patient. Obviously, anytime you have a patient who starts to obstruct or becomes significantly hypoxic, um, you're going to have to manage the airway urgently. In this patient, we've got some mild hypoxia, and we're going to, I guess, pretend that her airway is okay for now. But what I'm doing uh, while she's seizing, I'm getting two nasal trumpets, one in each side. I'm putting on a non-rebreather for oxygen and turning it way up. And as long as it doesn't impair anything else that I'm doing in the department, I'm getting her into a lateral decubitus and putting her on her side. And we're getting suction ready and again calling RT to prep for an intubation. So let's talk about the things that we know she is going to get in the emergency department already. 
She's been seizing for 15 minutes. She's had a single dose of benzos. And usually midazolam, 10 milligrams IM, is enough by itself. We don't often repeat midazolam. At this stage, maybe I'd consider a second dose of benzos. I'd either do 4 milligrams of lorazepam IV if I've got one, or I'd maybe do a second dose of midazolam IM, 10 milligrams. But at this point, we've already decided that benzos is probably not going to solve this problem. In my mind, I've already decided that I'm going to need to start an anti-epileptic medication, an infusion in the emergency department. Regardless, she's going to need it. And I'm likely going to have move on to a rapid sequence intubation with uh, sedative medications, which are hopefully going to stop her seizing as soon as possible. We know that people on status do much worse the longer they seize. They get more systemic and neurologic complications. Their seizures become more refractory. So I need to stop this seizure as soon as possible. So what am I going to call for? What am I calling for right away? I'm getting nurses to work on the benzos that I need. I'm getting nurses to draw up my anti-epileptic medication. In my shop, all I have is Dilantin. Elsewhere, it may be Keppra or maybe Valproic Acid. We'll talk about the evidence behind that, but in my shop, Dilantin, 20 milligrams per kilogram, and that we're going to run in. I'm also going to call for propofol. So I'm going to need a bolus dose and I'm going to need an infusion. Um, I'm also going to call for my paralytic. That's a big discussion in itself. In this case, I will probably use succinylcholine unless I can come up with any other specific contraindications. We'll talk about that at length. But I'm preparing for RSI with my propofol and my sucks. But guess what? The benzos, the phenytoin, the propofol are going to make her very hypotensive. So I, along with the fluids, I'm going to be mixing up a push-dose presser. For me, probably phenylephrine, um, which I can do myself and save up some hands for somebody else. As well as I'm going to have a nurse working on a norepi drip. If the blood work hasn't come back, or I haven't identified hypoglycemia, or I haven't identified any other major antidotes that I need to give this patient, I'll take probably 30 seconds, I'll pull the boyfriend aside, and I'm going to get really specific collateral that I need from this guy about his partner. Things like allergies, things like medications she's on, and any past history he knows about. Is she pregnant? Has she been pregnant? Has she delivered recently? That's important. For me, I need to know if she's postpartum, and I'll probably get a quick focus of her pelvis, because if she's got a 20-week uh, intrauterine pregnancy there, I should be able to see it, even on a really quick scan. We know magnesium is so much better than any other medications I just listed. I need to know if this is eclampsia or not. Probably going to proceed with RSI. Probably a 2 gram per kilo dose of propofol. I'm going to use my sucks. We'll talk about the reasons for that later. And we're going to protect her airway and move on to a propofol infusion. I'm really hoping at that stage that we are going to get cessation of her seizures with the propofol bolus that we give. And the phenytoin that's running at the exact same time is going to help prevent any recurrence of seizures at a later date. And of course, once she stops seizing, we talk about the full workup. She's going to get a full primary and secondary survey. We're going to reassess the blood work looking for uh, triggers and causative factors. I'm going to look for traumatic issues with her. And we're going to order the CAT scan that she's going to get. And when she comes back from that CAT scan, she's going to be prepped for an LP. And hopefully by this point, the ICU's down there with me. We're bouncing ideas off each other, and she will almost certainly be admitted to the unit for consideration uh, specifically of continuous EEG monitoring to rule out non-convulsive status epilepticus, which is not uncommon following these status epilepticus cases. So scary case, but that's how I'd run through it. Well, Paul, if me or any of my family members ever have a seizure that lasts more than a few minutes, I really hope that you're taking care of me. That was outstanding. If you look at the guidelines for patients who aren't quite yet in status, they've only been seizing for, say, one or two or three minutes, then they recommend giving benzo slowly over a few minutes because my guess is they're concerned over apnea and hypotension, and that concern outweighs their concern of complications of seizure. They'd argue that most seizures self-terminate in a couple of minutes, but no ED doc I know would wait for an entire five minutes before giving their first benzo to a seizing patient, and no doc I know would be giving the benzo slowly over a few minutes. Is there any role in giving benzo slowly in the first few minutes of seizure onset? Or at all. I mean, you bring up a couple uh, interesting points there. 
how fast do we give the benzos? We'll talk about which benzos and what route, et cetera, later. But how fast do you give them? And should you be giving benzos in the first couple of minutes before somebody is diagnosed with status at five minutes? Because reviewing the guidelines and reviewing a lot of the literature, almost uh, universally, um, you'll notice that the first five minutes are supportive care only. A lot of the guidelines will not include uh, benzos in those first five minutes. The guidelines that we look at are largely status guidelines. So they will talk about to give them when you've diagnosed the status, which again is the seizures of five minutes or multiple recurrent seizures. But like you said, it's pretty rare for me to see a, a colleague or for me myself to see a seizure and not feel the urge to to jump on it immediately because we know that the longer these seizures go, the worse these patients do and the more refractory they become. I think one of the, the big concerns is, is that people say that you know seizures do usually spontaneously resolve, right? I, I guess the vast majority do and uh, it'd be a couple of minutes, they pop out of it, that's great. And so they may not need benzos, but it's difficult to say that's the case when you're seeing somebody seizing in front of you. And of course, if they spontaneously resolve, people worry about the side effects of benzodiazepines. Big things are respiratory depression and hypotension, and people get very worried about this and they'll alter their doses. And I think that's the rationale behind some of the guidelines saying to give four milligrams of lorazepam IV over two minutes. I've never seen a slow infusion of a benzodiazepine <laughs> during a seizure. So from my perspective, I think practically, if somebody's seizing in front of you, because it's not, it's not uncommon that somebody will start seizing in the emergency department and you'll get to them before the five-minute part, I would do the supportive care. I would you know, get your airway, IV, monitors, et cetera, put them into cubitus, deal with the patient from that perspective. And it, you order your benzos immediately. Um, you make sure they're in hand. And usually by the time you've finished these maneuvers and gotten your benzos, it's been a couple of minutes. So I don't encourage you to hammer them with four milligrams of lorazepam within a 30 seconds of a seizure starting, but like you can take your time, make sure this isn't a seizure mimic, make sure this isn't anything else that you're worried about, whether this is, uh, you know, psychogenic or not, but get everything ready. But I wouldn't refrain from pulling the trigger before the five minute mark. I think it's perfectly reasonable to attempt to abort these seizures if they continue after you've watched and waited for a couple of minutes. I don't have a specific time that I would suggest, but I, I wouldn't give anybody a hard time for treating early. So certainly, I mean, we use benzodiazepines in the treatment of seizures that aren't status epilepticus. So I don't think there is really a downfall, especially in your emergency room where you can monitor them for these other potential uh, side effects of the benzos. As you said, I think it's a great idea to be drawing your benzos up if you have a patient that's seizing. It may be five minutes by the time you get to them, but I don't think there's a problem to give it earlier than that. Whether you would go ahead and give the full four milligrams, I guess that part might be up for debate. Whether you might start with something like two milligrams, there's really, I don't think, a right answer to that question. But I agree that you should try and get the seizure under control as quickly as possible. Yeah, this brings to light the definitions of seizure versus status in the first place. I mean, if you see someone in front of you starting to seize... By the time uh, you call the nurse, the nurse then goes to draw up the medication. The medication is then delivered to the patient, given to the patient. I mean, we're talking a few minutes already. Pretty much everyone who we see seizing in the emergency department, if they don't stop within a minute or two, like most seizures do, are going to be status epilepticus. You know, I, I think we just need to understand that uh, status epilepticus isn't this long drawn out thing is that it's actually going to be pretty much every patient who doesn't resolve on their own within a minute or two. Let's kind of break down each step that uh, you described in your approach and talk about some of the important details and controversies and options. So I'd like to cover the dosing of benzos first, then what the second line options are, some of the nuances of airway management. So again, the first step is rule out hypoglycemia, and then we're going on to benzos. We know that benzos are frequently underdosed and that there is often a delay to getting them in. Is there a benzodiazepine of choice for emergent seizure cessation? Yes, <laughs> but it's not a hard and fast rule. I think 
the real fun thing, uh, I came and did simulation at your conference uh, in February of this year. And it was really interesting, kind of eye-opening actually, to, to see just the wide variety of people who listen to your podcast. And some of those people were rural docs who work in small nursing outposts. There were nurses there, there were EMS people there. There was a ton of people there and they have different things available to them and different resources to deal with seizures. And the question was always like, you know, what if I have this or what if I have that? Or I don't have this benzo, I don't have that benzo. And I think that those are those are really fun to problem solve and brainstorm with. But in the end, when it comes to benzodiazepines and status epilepticus, use a proper dose, use it quickly, and just use it. The most important metric really is the time to getting that uh, benzodiazepine in when it comes to status epilepticus. I think that's a really important point to reiterate. So a lot of experts will argue that it doesn't matter so much which benzodiazepine, and we'll talk about sort of the literature and tell you what we think the best benzodiazepine is, but really the most important factor to whether the patient's going to stop seizing or not is time to first benzo. Dr. Reed, what, what, what's your opinion on that in terms of which benzo is the best benzo of choice for status? I agree. I don't know that there is a best benzo. I would say either IV lorazepam or IM midazolam, but get it in quickly. I think that is the most important point. We do know that there are changes that are occurring even early in status epilepticus that make the benzodiazepines less effective later on. Changes to GABA receptors that downregulate GABAergic activity. Some of the receptors are internalized or there are differences in the receptor subunits that are expressed. And so the benzodiazepines and other GABAergic medications are just not as effective later on in status as they are early. So I agree Whatever benzo you have, get it in there. Even more reason not to stand around and wait for five minutes to pass before you <laughs> give the sure. first benzo. So I think we've made the point that it's really time to first benzo and then adequate dosing. Before we get into the best benzo, although we've kind of given it away already, IV lorazepam, and if you don't have an IV, then I am midazolam. We'll talk about the evidence for that. But... I understand that the literature is ripe with proof that we generally underdose benzos. So, Dr. Kolba, could you just go over for us what the best doses are for the various benzos for status epilepticus? Well, for seizure. So, the best dose for lorazepam intravenously for status epilepticus would be 0.1 milligrams per kilogram to a maximum of 4 milligrams. And what the guidelines recommend would be to wait four minutes and you can repeat a second dose of four milligrams at that time. Alternatives, if you don't have an IV, would be midazolam, 10 milligrams intramuscularly, which again, we'll get into the evidence about what's good and what's not. Um, but the midazolam, 10 milligrams, usually they recommend you don't repeat it. Um, so a single dose is usually enough based on the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the medication. Okay, so... IV lorazepam, four milligrams, four minutes later, give another four milligrams. I have to admit that for a while I was giving two milligrams and another two milligrams and another two milligrams, but that was wrong. It's four milligrams, four minutes later, another four milligrams. And for IM midazolam, it's 10 milligrams. And so actually it, it's really interesting that you bring that up. This new ESET trial, which we're going to talk about, which is comparing... Uh, anti-epileptic medications. There's been a meta-analysis just came out this year around the benzo use in the trial. And what they actually, what they noticed um, was that about 70% of the patients in the trial received an incomplete or a, a dose which was too low in the pre-hospital environment. An inadequate dose. Inadequate dose, yes. <laughs> so about 70% of uh, patients in the trial received an inadequate first dose of benzodiazepines. And the real shame of that is that this is the, this is the most important time of status when, like Dr. Reed said, your benzos are most effective and it's just really important to use a full, full dose at that time. And I'm assuming that the reason why the full doses aren't given are because they're worried about respiratory depression and hypotension. My understanding is that the respiratory depression and hypotension from status are actually a lot more dangerous than the respiratory depression and hypotension from a benzo. And that if you stop the seizure with the benzo, you're actually less likely to have respiratory depression and hypotension. 
Yeah, so there was a there was actually a study which a lot a lot of these guidelines reference where they compared lorazepam to diazepam to placebo in people who were in status epilepticus. So you can imagine this was a little while ago if they were offering placebo to people who were in status. But anyways, the the important thing was that the incidence of respiratory depression was lower in the uh, benzodiazepine patients, so the patients who received the benzos, versus the patients who received placebo. And the conclusion from that is is that if you have long drawn out seizures, you're more likely to develop respiratory depression than you are if you get early benzos in which stop your seizures. Yeah, one of the pearls that Swami mentioned in his Quick Hit podcast segment recently, which I thought was actually nice and simple and great, was to draw up multiple doses of benzos at the same time right at the beginning. Because if your patient hasn't stopped seizing within the first four minutes, you're going to give another dose. Before we leave first-line medications for status, I just want to talk a little bit about phenobarb. Um, Now, there are some physicians out there for severe alcohol withdrawal who are using phenobarb first line instead of benzos. Let's say you have a patient, a known alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence, who comes in with what's a presumed alcohol withdrawal seizure. Is there any role for that patient for starting with phenobarb instead of a benzo? So alcohol withdrawal seizures is one of those things, not so much a special seizure, but it's got a specific specific antidote. And that antidote is tons and tons of benzos. The use, uh, I know we're using, again, phenobarbital for severe alcohol withdrawal. But from what I can tell, uh, there isn't a lot of evidence on using phenobarbital alone for patients with alcohol withdrawal seizures. There was a landmark trial, uh, I believe it's the Veterans Collaborative Trial, which compared four different arms. So it was lorazepam, I think it was diazepam followed by uh, phenytoin, phenobarbital by itself. There were a number of arms. And the bottom line was that the only real difference that they noticed was between lorazepam and phenytoin. Phenobarbital by itself was appropriate that time. So I don't have any problems with using phenobarbital as a first-line medication in status epilepticus if you want to. For me, it's more of an adjunct. If you don't have the benzos, um, it's listed in the guidelines specifically as like an alternate medication. But for me, I'm not very familiar with it. It takes a long time to get from pharmacy. And during a status epilepticus, during an emergency like this, it's not the time to be trying new things. And I know that I can get uh, a dose of benzos into this patient, IV or no, very, very, very quickly. And I think the phenobarb is going to slow things down. So I don't necessarily recommend that for seizures, period, uh, let alone alcohol withdrawal. We haven't yet mentioned uh, rectal diazepam or buccal midazolam. I guess those are options as well. Again, as soon as you can get something, if someone comes in without an IV, probably the best is IM midazolam. But if for whatever reason you can't get the IM midazolam, I suppose rectal diazepam and buccal midazolam is an alternative, yeah? Yeah, we talk about uh, the IV medication. So if you have an IV and you have diazepam, that's fine. You can use it. There have been some studies showing lorazepam and diazepam are equivalent. There's different pharmacokinetic issues, the diazepam issue. The diazepam uh, will have a shorter antiepileptic duration, so I would use lorazepam instead. But IV is fine. And then we talk about... Rectal, buccal, intranasal. So buccal, midazolam, and intranasal midazolam are fine. You want to use your sort of highly concentrated midazolam to give intranasally. You don't want a large volume in there. Um, But there's been some issues with like uh, mucosal irritation with uh, the formula that you use. And then rectal diazepam, perfectly fine. It's funny that the meta-analysis from the ESET trial, the one thing that people usually dosed appropriately was rectal diazepam. For some reason, nobody's scared about giving medications rectally. But for me, I can't really understand the allure of accessing the rectum of a grown adult who's in the middle of a tonic-clonic seizure. I just can't imagine it's an easy thing to do. If I've got a thigh there, I'd rather use a midazolam IM. All right. So if you don't have a preference yourself and your nurses aren't used to using one drug over another, the best first-line benzo is IV lorazepam at four milligrams, then repeated four minutes later. If you don't have an IV, then the best benzo is IM midazolam 10 milligrams. 
And I just want to reiterate that the biggest pitfall in the emergency management of seizures and status is underdosing and dosing too late. Now, let's say we've given our patient four milligrams of IV lorazepam. We waited for four minutes. They're still seizing. We give them another four milligrams of IV lorazepam. Now we're into status epilepticus with failure of benzo. So before we get into the second line medications, Dr. Reed, how do you know that status epilepticus has actually resolved? Because my understanding is that after the motor activity has obviously settled, there is still some occult brain activity going on in many of these patients, and we don't have any EEG to know whether these patients are actually still in status epilepticus or not. Is there anything practically that we can do in the emergency department to figure out when the status is actually resolved? So certainly that is a big issue. A good amount of cases of status epilepticus can progress to subtle non-convulsive status epilepticus. And it can be really difficult without an EEG to know which of those patients. So what we really need to look for is whether they are starting to return back to their baseline. So maybe they're not going to be completely awake. Um, but if you've broken the status, then you would expect that you should be able to at least get some response out of them. And if you're not getting that, I would say particularly if it's been an hour and you're still really not seeing any return to baseline, you really should be concerned that they may be in non-convulsive status. And if you can't get the EEG, then you should, again, err on the side of caution and, and treat them as such and keep progressing within your protocol. So if they are not yet on anesthetics, then they should be. Okay, let's say, I mean, I, we see this all the time where someone's having a tonic-clonic seizure, you give them the benzos, the tonic-clonic seizure stops, but they're still like a little lip-smacking or an eyelid flittering or a little myoclonic jerk or something. What do we do with that? You know, I really think that if, if you're seeing things like that and it's enough to concern you that it might be status that is still ongoing, then you should continue with your algorithm and, and keep treating. Okay. So bottom line is err on the side of caution, which brings us to second line medications. So let's start with what the guidelines say. My understanding is that according to the guidelines, there are a variety of options for second line medications after your benzos and that they're all pretty much equal efficacy. What are your options for second line medications and what do you recommend? So per the guidelines, the options really are to use phenytoin, phenobarbital, valproic acid, or levetiracetam. I will honestly say I have the most experience with using in adults phenytoin as well. At least where I have worked, it's been very difficult to get IV valproic acid. So that usually rules that out for me as the next drug to go to. And as well, difficult, if not impossible, to get IV levetiracetam. Although I would say if I did have access to it, that might actually be my next agent of choice. But other than that, I would probably say phenytoin. So the guidelines say that one's no better than the other. It's basically what you're comfortable with. The other medication that you haven't mentioned is phosphenitoin. Now, I understand that the makers of phosphenitoin claim that it has a better side effects profile and that it can be given IM. I suppose that if you still haven't gotten IV access after an IM 10 milligrams midazolam, five minutes have passed then I suppose phosphenitoin would be a good second-line agent. Is there really any difference or advantage otherwise for phosphenitoin besides being able to give it IM? Personally, I don't have access to it, but um, the good things I've heard about it is it's better tolerated. I mean, phenytoin is an old drug. It's kind of a dirty drug. It's mixed in propylene glycol, so you can only infuse it so fast, but um, I mean, it's 50 uh, milligrams per minute. So, you know, the, the issues of being that you have cardiotoxicity, so you get uh, hypotension, arrhythmias, cardiac collapse. When you infuse it through an IV, you want to make sure your IV is real good because you can get tissue necrosis if you have extravasation of the phenytoin. Um, you get something called purple glove syndrome, which is a whole other ordeal, and you need multiple services involved with that, which may not even result from extravasation. So 
There's a lot of things associated with infusing uh, phenytoin and the phosphenytoin. The benefit of that is that it's a prodrug. It's water soluble, so it's not in propylene glycol. So you can infuse it faster. And it's usually better tolerated at the site of infusion, which is a bit of an odd thing to be excited about because your patient uh, at that stage is usually not awake. So with no real difference in the efficacy between the two, because essentially phosphenetone is metabolized to phenytoin, you know, I I don't think there's enough of a difference between the two that I would worry about it. Um, And certainly if I needed, if I didn't have IV access, I'm getting IOs very quickly in this patient. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about when you would avoid phenytoin or phosphenytoin. So the classic teaching is that we would not use either of those medications in the toxicologic patient. Could you just remind us why we should never use phenytoin or phosphenytoin in the in the obvious tox overdose patient? Yeah, so the mechanism through which phenytoin and phosphenytoin do most of their work is a sodium channel blockade, which is similar to uh, the mechanism associated with some of the toxidromes. So specifically, people come in seizing after they've used a lot of cocaine or in a TCA overdose. You worry that they've already got on board a toxin or a, a drug which has got significant sodium channel blockade. And if I'm now infusing another medication with the same side effect, the same mechanism, um, you're going to have significant cardiotoxicity. So it's difficult to say what you're going to do if you have the patient come in with undifferentiated seizures, which is what we see a lot of. But if you know there's a toxidrome or if they've got maybe you know, an abnormal rhythm on the monitor or whatever, you would like not to load them with uh, phenytoin. I would also add that if you have a patient in status who is a known patient with epilepsy and is already on phenytoin, I would choose a different um, second-line agent there as well. Um, You're not going to get the drug level back quick enough. And if they are already therapeutic on phenytoin, it is very unlikely that loading them with more phenytoin is going to be that beneficial in stopping the seizures. So it would be better to pick a different agent in that case as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I've also heard, actually, it was um, my friend Salim Rizé uh, on uh, Rebel EM who was discussing that exact issue, that if they're already on Dilantin, they wouldn't recommend giving Dilantin, sorry, phenytoin. But their reasoning was because they'd be worried about cardiovascular side effects. Definitely, there could be increased toxicity as well if someone is already on it and you're giving them further load. I think those are both good reasons to avoid it in that case. Okay, great. So again, guidelines say for second-line medications, this is after two doses of four milligrams IV lorazepam or one dose of IM midazolam, 10 milligrams, that uh, whether you're using phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid, or levetiracetam, i.e. Keppra, they're equally as effective. Some of the things to look out for are if you still don't have an IV, then phosphenytoin might be something you reach for. You do have to be concerned about the potential toxicologic patient when it comes to phenytoin and phosphenytoin. And the one thing we didn't mention is uh, that valproic acid is contraindicated in pregnancy. Swami had mentioned this in the Quick Hits podcast. His approach was to go after your second dose of IV benzo is to go straight to propofol. And this has been talked about a lot in foam. Justin Morgenstern has a really nice post on it on uh, First 10 EM that I highly recommend people read. So this approach involves going straight to propofol right after that second benzodiazepine dose. Dr. Koblick, what are the advantages and disadvantages of this approach? The whole premise behind the approach is that we know that patients with status do really poorly the longer they seize. Their seizures are more refractory. The medications we give them work poorer, and they have systemic and neurologic complications, which get worse and worse the longer they seize for. A lot of the studies uh, that are conducted to examine anti-epileptic medications um, and how beneficial they are to status will essentially do benzo, benzo, anti-epileptic, which will run over anywhere from 5 to 20 to 30 minutes. 
And then still, if you look at the data, a, a significant proportion of these patients will still be seizing. And what happens at that point is these patients will undergo RSI, be intubated, and get propofol, but at a fairly delayed point in their care. Like at 40 minutes. Yeah, at 40 minutes. And, and they'll consider this to be treatment failure. I think the mindset that, you know, people like Justin and there's some, I think there was a post on PalmCrit as well, like there, there's a, the mindset that we're trying to get around is, is that intubation is not a treatment failure. We deal with critically ill patients all the time in the emergency department. And often it's perfectly reasonable to intubate these people. And specifically the person in status epilepticus, they are going to do better if they're intubated early, say after failing two doses of benzodiazepines, versus being intubated at 40, 50 minutes when they've already been seizing and they have to deal with all the complications associated with their protracted seizure. Yeah, and by 40 minutes, they must be really acidotic. And of course, you know, we all know that there's high risk associated with intubating really acidotic patients. And so, yeah, it makes total sense that intubation is a lot less of a high-risk procedure if you do it after five minutes of seizure rather than after 45 minutes of seizure. If you look at the guidelines, and you'll see the American Epilepsy Society guidelines, you'll see neurocritical care guidelines, and a lot of these, uh, you know, you, you look at the algorithm, you look at the picture, and what it is is essentially a stepwise approach. And you know, when I first look at the American Epilepsy Society guidelines, there's a zero to five minute box, which is supportive care. There's a five to 20 minute box, which is essentially just benzos. 20 to 40 minute box, they start talking about anti-epileptic medications. And then 40 to 60 minutes, which is an insane amount of time for somebody to be seizing, there's a box which says, there's not much evidence for this box. Do what you see fit, including sedative infusions and whatnot. And if you just look at this at face value, it does look like you know, they're endorsing stepwise approach and there isn't a big emphasis on intubating early or at least, you know, stopping the seizure early. But if you read, literally there's one line in the guidelines which says, you know, depending on the etiology or severity of the seizure, patients may go through the phases faster or even skip the second phase and move rapidly to the third phase, especially in sick or intensive care unit patients. From my perspective, I feel like that's, you know, they've given us their blessing to be aggressive and work hard at stopping the seizure as early as possible. Nobody's saying that we should go benzo, benzo, propofol, and that's it. But I think that once you realize they're in status, you do a lot of things in parallel. That will be benzo, benzo, anti-epileptic medication running, and moving quickly to your sedative medications, which can be a number of different medications, whatever you feel comfortable with, and we'll talk about that. But inevitably, if you're giving high doses of these medications to terminate a refractory seizure, airway protection is going to be a part of their care as well. And I think the mindset, uh, the change in how you're thinking about it is that that shouldn't be treatment failure. That should be good care. So for the skeptics out there, what is the evidence for going straight to propofol after your second dose of benzo? So that's a great question. Um, I think uh, part of the you know pushback around this approach is that there's not a ton of evidence for it because we don't like to do things just because physiologically think they make sense. And there hasn't been a lot of evidence out there to show that terminating these seizures as early as possible can be reflected in better long-term neurological outcomes. We've been using seizure duration sort of as a proxy for measuring, you know, how well our treatments work. Um, and there's not a ton of evidence, I guess, for how well these patients do in the future. A lot of the evidence that we have really compares uh, propofol to barbiturates. There was a meta-analysis done this year, which looked at a number of different variables, including like hypotension, you know, average control time, which is how quickly they turn into the seizure, disease control rate, which was what rate do they have where after medication, there was no seizures for the next 12 hours, case fatality rate, stuff like that. And the only real difference they noticed was that propofol had a greater disease control rate and a greater average control time versus barbiturates. 
So there's some evidence out there that propofol itself is a great medication to use. But even, you know, if you didn't want to use propofol, there's other agents that you can be using in this case and starting at the same time to aggressively halt uh, seizures. If you are going to pull out propofol, then we're basically into our RSI. Um, and that brings up what the airway considerations are. So let's talk oxygen and airway. What are the airway considerations that are particular to status epilepticus? The first thing that always comes up is when should you intubate? You know, what drugs should we use? Propofol sounds like a good choice, but in terms of paralytics of choice, how should we best provide oxygenation before we intubate? On the one hand, if you stop the seizure, then the airway should be fixed by itself. But on the other hand, you're giving huge doses of benzos and propofol, which would normally mandate getting a tube in. Any insights into all these conundrums that come up with the status patient when it comes to airway? I think when the status patient uh, presents to your emergency department, you have to start getting ready for intubation. Um, it's something that should be ready at the bedside, and you should probably have plan A, B, and C available. And if you can get a second doc to be helping with it, I think that's important because there's no real way to assess uh, this patient's airway, um, whether it's uh, difficult or not difficult. You have no history. You can't look in the airway really at this time. So you really have to be ready for the worst case scenario. But bottom line is if you notice that the patient is obstructing or becoming hypoxic, you're going to need to manage that airway as soon as possible. Now, how you manage the airway is, I guess, the really interesting uh, discussion. You're going to need to decide on induction agents. You're going to need to decide on paralytics uh, and whether or not you're going to use paralytics. Uh, and so I think, you know, you start with induction agents. And you, for me, I think that propofol is my drug of choice. It's quick. It's easy. We have it available very quickly in the emergency department. I use it a lot. The main complications with this, obviously, is that the patient's going to stop breathing and the patient's blood pressure is going to drop significantly. So like I said in my general approach, you're going to want to have something there to manage the blood pressure. And obviously, when they become apneic, you're going to want to be able to intubate them. The paralytic, the choice of paralytic or the use of paralytic in this case is a really interesting discussion because the concern is, is that if you paralyze the patient for any extended period of time, you're not going to know if, they're have, if they have ongoing seizure activity. So you're hoping that if you give two milligrams per kilogram of propofol or higher in some in some papers, but uh, if you give that dose and then you start an infusion, you're hoping that you're terminating the seizure. Um, but if you're not, what are you going to do about it? So succinylcholine is great because it's usually going to last for about 10 minutes. And 10 minutes of ongoing seizure activity with the propofol infusion running, I can live with that. I don't think there's a, a major issue with that we can address when they come out of their paralysis and I can bump up the medications. There are uh, contraindications to using succinylcholine. So if this person has a chronic um, neurologic disorder, um, like a neuromuscular disorder, which is obviously longer than five days, you really can't give the succinylcholine because they're at risk of developing a significant hyperkalemia. If they have a history of malignant hyperthermia, you can't use it. Um, if they have, obviously, ongoing uh, hyperkalemia at the time, you can't use it. And that's that's a big question, too, because people who come in with seizures, which are protracted, can get rhabdo and hyperkalemia uh, and AKI. And so when is it safe to use sucks in uh, status epilepticus? Things I've seen so far, I mean, it's going to be a judgment call, 10, 15 minutes of seizure, probably go ahead. Uh, but if you get up to like 30, 35, 40 minutes, you're really going to want to think twice slash not use succinylcholine because um, you could really be doing the patient a disservice at that point if they've got rhabdo and elevated uh, potassium. So then the other option is uh, rocuronium, which based on your dose is probably going to paralyze this patient for anywhere up to an hour. And an hour with ongoing seizures is a, is a bigger deal. And in a center where you don't have continuous EEG available right away, which is probably most centers, that's an issue. That's an issue to deal with. So there's a couple of things that I've seen uh, online where people have suggested workarounds to this. So the first one is uh, using low-dose uh, rocuronium, so like 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. 
uh, the concern with that is, is that you're going to have a very delayed onset to your paralysis. And actually, your laryngeal paralysis is one of the last things to go. So you have the possibility where your patient may be fully apneic and you're unable to pass the tube, which is an issue. So if you haven't fully paralyzed the cords and you're using low doses of rock, I'm not sure I would go down that path. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the basic principles of using paralytics is to never underdose them. <laughs> is to paralyze. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just, you got to use big doses of paralytics. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Never Especially if your patient's doses. like hypotensive shocky or whatever, right? That's a, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine recommending the, the half dose rock. So yeah, if you, if you are going to use rock and half dose rock isn't your cup of tea, other possibilities would be to give full dose rock, intubate with RSI, and then use Sugamidex to reverse the rock. If you have it, sure, why not? It's expensive, but hey, this is what it's here for, right? So I don't mind that approach. I think it's great. I Personally, I don't have Sugamidex uh, available to me right away, but I think that's an approach which if you have this, if you have these drugs, go ahead and do it. So if you're going to RSI a patient, it's best to paralyze them. We, we know that. So using no paralytic probably isn't your best option. So then if it's between sucks and rock, if the patient's just been seizing for five or 10 minutes and they have no, they're not a dialysis patient and there's no known neuromuscular disorder, I think it's reasonable to use sucks, especially if you don't have Sugamidex. Probably the best option is rock plus Sugamidex because that takes away the problem of the complications of intubating without a paralytic. It gives you your paralytic so that you can intubate properly with a proper RSI and you can get the patient, as soon as you intubate the patient, you can reverse it so that you can see whether the patient is still seizing or not. Or get your continuous EEG if you have it. Um, but I, I got to admit that the debate over paralytic versus non-paralytic, there are docs out there who are very happy to intubate without paralytics. And then there are docs out there who will throw things at you if you even consider it. Personally, uh, I think my best first view in this case with a possibly difficult airway and a seizing patient, uh, I would want to use paralysis. And here's Canada's airway guru. You've heard him before on EM Cases, Dr. George Kovacs. All right, George Kovacs here on uh, when and why and how to intubate somebody uh, in status epilepticus. Let's start off with when and why. So the most common reason that we're going to intubate these patients is because of their predicted course. By definition, they've got uh, prolonged seizures and we're using escalating doses of drug that is going to cause respiratory depression in addition to potentially stopping their, their seizures. So otherwise, what will end up happening is that, yes, you might end up uh, stopping their seizure, and when they stop their seizure, it's going to be followed by an obstructed upper airway, and uh, you're going to be scrambling to sort of take care of this. So the predicted course is the most common reason that we're going to have to uh, manage these patients. The next question is, is when in terms of, of timing. And as soon as you've made the diagnosis of status epilepticus, I think concurrently you need to have a plan for and communicate with your team that uh, we're potentially going to move forward and, and intubate this patient or need to intubate this patient. Most people from from what I read and, and literature and consensus is, is that once you, you've maxed out or you've given a significant dosing of, of benzodiazepine, you really should be preparing to intubate this patient. You're going to wait for that dose or the doses of the, of the benzo to work, but concurrently you're ready to jump in. So probably, you know, within about five to 10 minutes or less after they've had 0.1 milligram per kilogram of their lorazepam or whatever you've given them to try to abort their seizing. There are also other reasons why you might want to do that sooner than later. I think it makes your, your decision-making in terms of your drugs, what you're going to use, a, a little bit simpler. The next step is that you need to assess the patient. And I think you need to assess the patient as if they're, they're not seizing. So whenever I, I'm considering airway management, I look at two things, the patient factors and then environment or context factors. So the patient factors are looking at their anatomy and, yeah, we're not going to be able to get them to do a lip bite or do melon patty, but you're still going to be able to look at them and say, are they going to be tough to tube? And if they're going to be tough to tube, are we going to have problems with mass ventilating the, the patient? And if those fail, am, am I going to be able to rescue the patient 
by placing a supraglottic airway or ultimately doing a, a front over neck airway. So I'm going to look at them from an anatomical perspective. I'm going to pay attention to their physiology. So is this just um, epilepsy gone wild and, and it's sort of non-compliance? Uh, or is there something bigger going on that I have to pay attention to um, before I manage this patient's airway? So is there some sort of CNS pathology? which obviously I want to be careful on and uh, not causing hypoxemia or hypotension or hyperventilating the patient because I know I'm going to increase their mortality if I were to cause any of those physiologic disturbances. I'm going to look for a systemic illness. Are they, are they septic? And, and again, do everything I can to sort of concurrently manage that. Is this part of a toxidrome? And then the simple stuff is there simple, something simple that I can uh, correct, like their glucose. So I'm going to look at the anatomically from and then from a physiologic perspective some people do advocate for using a sedation only approach so using a large dose of propofol or propofol in combination of ketamine to uh, abort uh, their seizures and then avoid using a paralytic so you can still observe their seizures I just don't think that that's something that I'm going to do because I think that you're going to run into problems during airway management. And I, I wouldn't advocate uh, for that, but I know that there's some people that believe that that's an option. The thing that you do have to pay attention to is that really these are at-risk patients because these are patients that I, I can't adequately pre-oxygenate for obvious reasons. It's very difficult to to denitrogenate an actively seizing patient uh, with flush rate oxygen or with a BVM. I mean, you're not going to be able to apply a BVM. So what I would do is if you can get some nasal prongs on there and then also put a non-rebreather on and put it up to flush rate oxygen, do your best to denitrogenate uh, your patient, recognizing it's going to be probably inadequate and their oxygen consumption rates are going to be quite high. So these patients, as soon as you render them apneic, they are going to desaturate quickly. So you're not going to have a whole lot of time. And that, that really leads into one of the reasons why I want to do a, a rapid sequence intubation. I really think that that's the way to go. And I'll talk briefly about that. Um, my induction drug is going to be uh, primarily a propofol. They're advocates of using ketafol here because uh, ketamine, through its uh, interactions with GABA receptors and then MMDA receptors, has uh, anti-seizure properties and that these uh, might be synergistic, uh, the propofol with the ketamine. The added advantage of this is that these patients are at risk for hypotension uh, post-intubation. They're often uh, behind from a fluid perspective. And again, we need to pay attention to that and give them fluid bolses uh, before and have medications to uh, rescue their blood pressure as needed with pressors. And some people, again, may feel better giving these patients a, a presser before uh, going ahead with uh, the propofol that you're going to use, I probably would go ahead with a ketafol induction with this patient. And then I'd, I'd follow it with a, with the paralytic. And, and here's where the controversy lies. Sucks versus rock. You know, sucks has fallen out of favor for, for all kinds of reasons. It's a bit of a dirty drug and, and reasons not to give it. And so... The advocates for sucks here would say that, you know, it's short duration and therefore I'm, I'm able to then observe their seizure activity and that's a, a valid approach. The issue is, is that there is the theoretic potential in a seizing patient that might have some associated hyperthermia, some rhabdo going on and, and uh, be at risk for hyperkalemia. And I think that that is a, a theoretic concern. Um, we know that there's really some delay before that's going to happen, at least in other settings such as burn and, and rhabdo and, and other scenarios. So probably the same applies here. And again, I, I don't know what that timing would be, but I think you're okay if you're within you know the first 20, 25 minutes um, of the onset that you're probably okay. But again, I can't say that supported by any any evidence. If you're concerned about this, then I think that the simplest thing is to avoid succinylcholine but not avoid paralytics. I would go with, with rocuronium. 
And when you use rocuronium, again, the, the obvious concern is, is that its effect can be prolonged in upwards of an hour given in proper doses. And I think you should give it in a proper dose because I want to rapidly secure this patient's airway because they are going to be hypoxemic quite quickly after, uh, after inducing them for the reasons that I, that I just talked about. So I would use full dose. I don't think there's any role for using small dose rock in, the, in this scenario. That's just my view. So I'm going to use, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 uh, milligrams of verocuronium um, as part of my RSI. Now, I'm going to do that with, with a caveat. The caveat is that I do have Sugamidex available to me, and I would fully reverse this patient afterwards um, to allow me to observe the patient. And it really, Sugamidex should be available to most it is expensive. We don't use it very often. I would never use it to rescue a patient in a CICO scenario, but I would use it in this scenario where evaluating the patient from a neurologic perspective is uh, important. And I probably would use the, the full dose, which is um, you know, going to be, I think, upwards of 16 milligrams per uh, kilo to reverse the, the rock in this scenario. And it will do it rapidly. So that's the option. Option two is whether you have a continuous EEG monitoring that um, seems to be elusive to many to, to get uh, in whatever setting. I know that actually, believe it or not, some pre-hospital programs, I think BCEHS, their flight program has EEG monitoring um, that they use. So it is something that's attainable, but for, for most of us, you don't have it. So the third approach is that you accept the fact that uh, you're using rock for the reasons we described, and you're just going to be very aggressive in terms of your, you know, your your anti seizure medication approach. I think that's the riskier of of the three scenarios. So you're either going to use EEG monitoring or you're going to reverse it with Sugamidex. That's going to be my approach. Otherwise, um, I think you're okay. Certainly in the early phase, that if you use succinylcholine, you're okay to do that. The last thing I, I just want to comment on is that this is a patient that I am going to definitely mass ventilate through till uh, apnea and through laryngoscopy. You're just not going to be able to do apneic oxygenation is not going to work well, I don't think, for these patients. It could be related to their underlying condition but because of the fact that they would be very difficult to pre-oxygenate. So I'm going to do this carefully. And in terms of uh, with my what called super BVM, which means I have uh, waveform capnography on, I've got uh, a pressure manometer on, and I've got a, a peep valve um, attached, and I'm doing gentle assisted uh, and then and then full uh, mass ventilation. And you know what? You call it heresy, but I might actually even apply some cricoid pressure as I gently mass ventilate this patient. You know what? All kinds of controversy about that. What we have to know is that, yes, cricoid pressure probably doesn't uh, work in terms of preventing significant um, aspiration. It can cause harm, but that harm is easily aborted by uh, letting up if you have problems with mass ventilation, laryngoscopy, or supraglottic airway. So you can toss this portion of, of what I'm saying if you're a, a non-believer, but I definitely would mass ventilate the patient through the apneic period. And really, those are all my pearls I have. Hope that was useful. Thanks. I want to move on to the sort of still refractory patient. So let's say you've given your two doses of benzos, you've done an RSI, You've given a big bolus of propofol. You've started your second-line anti-epileptic medication, let's say phenytoin, at a, an appropriate dose. You've got your propofol infusion going, and the patient's still seizing. By this time, the patient should be in the ICU and not in the emergency department, but unfortunately, reality is that sometimes they're stuck in your emergency department still. What's your next line the most common thing is to use another second-line anti-seizure medication, different from the one that you used before. So you could use any of the ones that we mentioned. So the phenytoin, the valproic acid, the phenobarb, the levetiracetam, and then titrate your infusion. And then lecosamide is another newer anti-seizure medication 
that has not been really well studied. So there's not enough evidence yet for it to be in the guideline as that first anti-seizure medication you go to. But it's certainly been proven effective in some cases of status. And so a typical loading dose of that, you could give um, 400 milligrams IV. But I think most people still are, are giving one of those other second line agents from the guideline that they didn't already give and just adding on to what they've given before. Fair enough. Yeah, from what I've seen and heard online, I agree that titrating up the infusion uh, is probably a big part of it as well. You want to make sure that your propofol is maxed out. And there has been some evidence for ketamine early, and by early, I mean like in super refractory status. And I know that uh, Swami mentioned in his quick hits that there's a possibility of using ketamine even earlier than that. I don't think there's a lot of evidence for ketamine early, early, like um, along with your propofol is the first sort of set of agent you're running. But uh, I, I see a pretty little downside of at least attempting ketamine in somebody who's got refractory status epilepticus. Yeah, I understand there was one study that showed that when ketamine was used in status within 24 hours that ketamine was initiated, that it decreased the mortality rate. And certainly it's, it's, I guess, synergistic. I mean, we're not going to talk physiology as to why ketamine works or not. I saw one uh, protocol online actually where they were actually inducing uh, with propofol and ketamine. So like two milligrams per kilogram of propofol and two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. I think that was palm crit, um, which is actually like, I think it was out like a couple of years ago. It was pretty aggressive, but you know, food for thought if you've got nothing else. Yeah, for that extraordinarily rare patient in status who might be hypotensive, I suppose ketophol might be a logical induction agent. Just not ketamine by itself. I think I'd probably want something else there too. All right. Yeah, I mean, almost every time patients are in status, they're hypertensive and tachycardic. Mm -hmm. But I suppose if you have someone who's, say, profoundly septic with meningitis in status, then and you've given them a whole bunch of benzos, they could be hypotensive, and in that case, ketophol might be a reasonable option. One of the other suggestions was if blood pressure is an issue with propofol, the midazolam infusion, like load and infused midazolam, is supposed to be a little bit more neutral uh, blood pressure-wise. All right. So, you know, once we're getting into super refractory status, there's not a ton of evidence. Your options include midazolam infusion, doing whatever second-line anti-epileptic medication that you weren't using before, and ketamine. So we talked about the broad differential diagnosis of seizure in our first case. Now we've got a patient in status. What's your sort of most practical way of working through the differential diagnosis when you actually have the seizing patient in front of you? All right. So the patient is seizing in front of you and you need to know what to target. You want to know why this patient is seizing. So provoked versus unprovoked seizure, it's a big deal to differentiate the two. And what you're looking for immediately would be immediate things that you can fix and change and will likely stop this patient's seizing. So while the general differential for me will be divided between intracranial and systemic, a large number of the things that I'd be looking for will be systemic. So immediate life threats, let's say vitals first, vital sign extremes. So we're talking hypoxic patients. We're talking patients who are hypotensive, hypoxic. They're, they have this hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and we need to reverse these vital sign changes to stop them seizing. We have people who have hypertensive encephalopathy, which is hypertensive emergency. So I need to bring their pressure down fairly quickly in the emergency department. And we've got hyperthermic patients for either toxic, metabolic, or environmental reasons, no matter what, I have to lower their core temperature to help them stop seizing. Speaking of metabolic, we've got a wide variety of metabolic issues that have got specific antidotes. So let's start off with uh, hypoglycemia. We can give these people a D50W uh, IV to help reverse it. We've got patients who are hyponatremic, um, and we can treat their seizures with hypertonic saline or an amp or two of sodium bicarb if you don't have hypertonic saline. We've got patients with hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia, which we need to replace their electrolytes to help them stop seizing as well. 
And finally, you've got toxidromes and eclampsia. So eclampsia, these patients do significantly better when you give them boluses and infusions of magnesium sulfate. And toxidromes, you name it, there's a number of medications out there which can cause seizures. And your specific antidotes can be things like pyridoxine and INH toxicity, can be bicarb and anticholinergic or TCA toxicity. It's important to keep a broad differential and to really focus on these special seizures with immediate antidotes that you can fix urgently in the emergency department. Then you've got your patients maybe over the next few hours where you can fix what's going on. Now we start getting a little bit more intracranial. So people with uh, intracranial hemorrhage, uh, elevated ICP, you know, these are the people we need to reverse their anticoagulants, fix their bleeding diathesis, get that CT to figure out what's going on. And you're going to want to work on their uh, elevated ICP with things like mannitol and hypertonic saline. Things like CNS infection, which can be really broad. So again, you're going to answer, you're going to ask questions about risk factors for meningitis, encephalitis, immunosuppression, which put them at higher risk for certain um, uh, illnesses, travel history, weird and wonderful things, cerebral malaria, neurocysticercosis. All of these things uh, will have you know, specific treatments, which you're going to want to get started very, very quickly. Uh, antibiotics, antifungals, etc. And on top of this, you're going to need an LP after your CT, of course, to further diagnose what's going on. And then you're going to go through the rest of your slightly less urgent differential, which uh, will be things like intracranially neoplasms, AVMs, uh, you know, ischemic strokes. Uh, systemically, you've got things like Metabolically, liver, kidneys, thyroid, uh, which are not working and causing you to seize. You've got uh, a wide variety of drugs and toxins and withdrawal syndromes. Hematologically, things like porphyria. Rheumatologically, things like anti-NMDA encephalitis, which is actually underappreciated. Um, so we should be looking for this as well. So, you know, we haven't talked about even like genetics issues, but I think that's a, a pretty good start. And the important thing is to really prioritize uh, what you can fix urgently um, in the emergency department to stop them seizing. Sounds like a great approach. All right, we're nearing the end of the podcast here. The last question I want to ask, which I've asked on many podcasts before what you think the future of ED management of seizures and status epilepticus is going to be in the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years? So I think one thing that is important is that there are currently trials underway to look at the efficacy and compare what are currently the second-line anti-seizure medications in the status algorithm. So hopefully we will get some more information about whether some of them are actually more beneficial than others. As we kind of talked about before, I think moving to treatments targeted at NMDA receptors like ketamine may become more standard use earlier in the treatment of status. And then maybe not applicable to the emergency room setting, but there are case reports, and I think there will be more studies underway, looking at things like neuromodulation. So using deep brain stimulation or vagus nerve stimulation for a super refractory status epilepticus patient is an area that I think will be of a lot of interest. And then you sometimes see reports of things like ECT to break status epilepticus and whether there will be more uh, work looking at actually at, at evidence of doing things like that. And then ESET, I think, is going to be huge. And it'll be nice to have some guidance about which anti-epileptics are most useful in status epilepticus. Can somebody just invent like an iPhone app with some stickers and we'll get continuous EEG in the emergency department? It can't be that hard. Come on, Anton. Yeah, really. I mean, the technology for <laughs> EEG monitoring can't be. I mean, what, how big's the machine? Oh, they're pretty big right now. I mean, they still Boo. have the computer, but they don't They don't need to be probably, so. Yeah, I mean, they, they've got the new uh, butterfly ultrasounds that, are, that fit in your palm, you know, and we've been using these giant ultrasound machines. Yeah, let's shoot for EEG monitors that you can put in the palm of your hand. All right. Well, thanks so much for both your insights into uh, the wild and ec ecstatic world of, uh, of seizures and status epilepticus. I certainly learned a lot preparing for this and hearing your insights. I think our listeners will too. Thanks for having me. <laughs>